Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Today is March 11th, 2021. I'm Evan Bellinger, Evan Bellinger interviewing Rich Schmidt here at Bellinger Estates. Hi, Rich. Thanks for sitting down today. Thank you so much. What do you do? <laughs> so I'm the director of archives and resource sharing at Linfield University in McMinnville. I was hired in a library part of the job in 2011 and joined the archives, which was just getting started uh, about a year later. Uh, so and the Oregon Wine History Archive is a big part of our project. So I've been working in the archives since 2012. And I've been the director since 2017. Awesome. How do you how did you get into that job? Tell me the story. It's uh, a good question, and it's, it's a very, very random question, a very, very random answer, I guess. I, uh, I went to Willamette University in Salem, graduated in 2003. Uh, while I was at Willamette, I worked in the library, and I had this, that was, that was a skill set I had learned and enjoyed as a student there, and I thought, I will, I, maybe that's something I can consider doing after I graduate for a couple of years. So I graduated in 2003, I didn't have anything lined up to do, um, and an entry-level position at Willamette opened up, and so I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. I'll, I'll throw my name in the, in the ring there, and if uh, if uh, I get hired, maybe I do it for a year or two, figure out what's next. If I want to go back to grad school, if I want to find something else to do. So I got hired in 2003, moved up to Salem from Eugene, where I grew up, um, with my then-girlfriend, now-wife. And we, I got started right away, and I got, as soon as I got hired, my boss went on paternity leave about a month later, and I took over his, his position with like no idea what I was doing. I was 22. Um, and had no business running a department at a library at that point, but uh, liked it a lot, learned a lot, enjoyed, had good support, um, and it was fun being my alma mater. It was fun like seeing my f- professors and seeing uh, students who had a year or two behind me still around and kind of being part of that Willamette family still. Uh, so I ended up working there until 2011, had a variety of jobs. Uh, during that time, my, I got married. Uh, my wife went to Willamette as well and then started working in the, also in the library, so that was pretty fun. Uh, we were in different departments, but a small library. Um, and then I, was, I worked a variety of positions there, including um, interlibrary loan was my main thing. I worked at the circulation desk. I worked in digitization, working hand-in-hand with the archives, which is a foreshadowing. Um, but I, by the end, you, you realize that if you never really leave your alma mater, you never really graduate from college. If you just go back to work uh, at the same place, then everybody kind of sees you as the student who never left. And it's hard to kind of form an identity. It's kind of like going to college in the first place. Once you, you break out of the hometown, you go to a new college, you have that chance to kind of form a new identity for yourself. It's the same thing when you leave that first job, leave your alma mater finally after being there for far too long uh, and go on and find something else. So a job at Linfield opened up in 2011 uh, in interlibrary loan, which is what I really enjoyed doing. It was, it was good at. And you said interlibrary loan. Interlibrary loan. So borrowing and sharing materials, borrowing and lending materials between libraries. So uh, making our materials available to other libraries, patrons at other libraries who can't, who don't own those things and finding things for our patrons. So that can be books and movies, that can be journal articles, uh, theses, whatever. Um, so and, and so you you know you hire and train students and they do a lot of the processing you do a lot of the administrative work and the requesting um, and I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed working with students I really enjoyed helping people get materials for fun for pleasure and also for research and study 
so that was my job at Willamette. Um, and then it, by the end, I was doing a couple other things that I wasn't enjoying quite as much. And when the job at Linfield opened up, I was excited. It was one of the, we had just bought a house right at the, right as the housing market had crashed. We were not thinking about trying to sell because the bottom had fallen out of our house immediately, of course. Uh, so we were not thinking about trying to sell, but Linfield was close enough to where we were living in Salem. Uh, my wife had a job there and was, uh, and we were, we were kind of settled there, but Linfield was close enough that I could consider working there. Um, and I was excited for a new challenge. Like I said, you, you kind of, I kind of had aged out of where I needed to be at that point. So I got hired at, in August of 2011 at Linfield. Um, about two months later, we hired our first ever archivist, Rachel Woody, who will be a big part of the story here going forward. She was hired in October 2011 on a part-time basis and went full-time sometime in 2012. Um, and that was the first archives, Lin, first archivist Linfield's ever had. It's the first a permanent employee. We'd had some contract archives work done before that. Um, uh, but Linfield in the 150-ish years of its history had never had a full-time archivist. And so when Rachel was hired, um, the, 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 the driving force, the impetus behind that was the Oregon Wine History Archive. Um, but it also allowed us to do Linfield history work as well. So we are the Linfield Archives, Linfield College, then Linfield University Archives now. Uh, keeping the school's history. Uh, the school was founded in 1858. It's a Baptist, it was a Baptist mission, so American Baptist, so we have American Baptist history. Uh, we also have the nursing campus in Portland. It was, used to be the Good Samaritan School of Nursing. We have that history as well. It's kind of the Linfield side of things. And then we have the wine history. So as I always say, we have the Baptist, we have the wine under one roof. It's a very strange archive, <laughs> probably unique in the world, um, but a really fun uh, and diverse collection uh, there. But the wine industry was the big thing that got us going. That's what got us the funding to hire an archivist. It's what got us the funding to put climate control into the archives, get it set up with materials and all that. Um, the president of the university, or excuse me, president of the college at the time, Tom Helley, a huge fan and supporter of the Oregon wine industry. Um, there are a few stories about how the archive actually got started, but the gist of it is that there was a, uh, there was a group of the kind of the pioneering families in the area who were at the time at the point of kind of aging into retirement, uh, selling in a couple of instances, uh, passing their winery down to the second generation, um, but they had these materials that needed a home, needed preservation, needed to be you know curated, collected, preserved, digitized, shared, all of that um, in a place that wasn't their winery or tasting room or attic or basement, uh, and so there was that. And on the on the Linfield side of things, there's very cre clearly a desire to have a unique collection that was regionally, geographically specific. Um, and wine is a perfect one. McMinnville, uh, right in the, heart, in the heart of wine country, uh, even then, which was booming, is still booming now, a decade later. Um, there's, there are hundreds and hundreds of wineries within 30 minutes of campus. And so um, before all the things that have come after it, before the wine studies program that we have now, um, before all the wine industry experiences and certif certification programs and WSET training, all the things that Linfield's a part of now, uh, with wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive was the first like official relationship the school as an institution had with the industry. Um, obviously IPNC predates that by 30 years, um, but IPNC is more about Linfield as a place to hold this. It's in the summer, the students aren't really around unless they're working there. So uh, the archive when we started in 2011 was this official relationship and it was a, it's a big deal to start an archive with pioneering families to say we will take your materials as much as you want to give to us, and that's you know paper, photographs, documents, journals, um, correspondence, newspaper articles, et cetera, et cetera. 
We will take them, we will organize them, we will preserve them in a such a way. We will create an index, a finding aid for researchers and students and consumers, whoever is interested, and we will store them in perpetuity here and we'll protect them. Um, that's a big deal when you're talking about the Sokolwassers and Erath's and the Ponzi's and, and, and then some of those names that were in the original collection. Um, and so it's a big leap to take, especially for a school like Linfield, which is historically fairly financially conservative and fairly not, I would say, kind of risk averse. It's a big risk. They spent a lot of money um, on hiring an archivist and, and setting up the setting up an ar a, a professional archive. Um, and so my part of the story comes in, like I said, I was hired just before Rachel was, um, and I was actually on I remember, I remember meeting her, I remember her, I had just gotten there, school had just started, and she came out for her interview with a couple of other candidates for that position. So I remember meeting her uh, when she was here, and she had she went to uh, Pacific University of Forest Grove, and then she gone off and got her archive, uh, archives degree, library degree, and then worked at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And so uh, she wanted to come back home, she was excited about wine, but she also had this cool pedigree of having been in the Smithsonian. Um, and I remember being excited about her, really happy when we hired her and happy when she accepted. Um, and so she got started and I, you know, I interacted with her a few times over the first year, but mostly I was just kind of dealing with my position and uh, getting students kind of retrained in the way I do things and kind of familiarizing myself with Linfield and with the new library and all these new, all these new faculty and buildings I never heard of before that have, you know, you kind of take for granted when you work your alma mater. Uh, so that was a, it was a fun first year. Um, and then I got to a point, uh, Linfield's a small campus, library's small, small staff where all, everybody does more than is probably in their description usually. So um, when I went to my then boss, Susan Barnes-White, and said, after about a year or so, and said, hey, I, I think I need more to do. Like, this is an everyday job that I have now, but it's not a full-time, 40-hour-a-week job. I don't need all of this time. And she's like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't, I don't know what needs to be done. She's like, well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's archives. And I said, oh, archives. I work with archives at Willamette. That's fun. I really like Rachel. She and I get along really well. Seems like she's doing some cool work. I'll go ask her. And I remember asking her. I remember she came into my office, and she sat down, and she's like, I said, you know, I would love to help you out in the archives. And she said, I, this can't be a tease. Like, if you're going to do this, <laughs> I, I need you to be, like, in. Because this is going to, we're going to dump a lot on you. There's a lot going on. I can't have you kind of half in, half out. I said, no, I'm in. Let's do it. Um, and so we proceeded, and it was, it was pretty cool because we were starting an archive, not from scratch, but kind of from scratch. The program had just barely started. Again, we'd had contract archivists in who got things squared away and did a really nice job of getting us like a baseline. But there was no existing structure, and there had been no kind of archival outreach in the past, so the campus didn't was unaware that we had an archive until she got there. And then all of a sudden, the campus knew and the alumni knew, and things were just coming into the archives. Just like by, it felt like by the truckload sometimes. It looked like a yard sale back there. There's so many things. All all of the different campus departments have their own little archive, and they have someone who's been there forever has collected all the materials. As soon as there's a centralized place, it's like let's get this out of here and get it over there. So we were taking in collections, and we were hiring and training students. And this is. It's graduate level work that these students are doing eventually. They're, tr they're training into the part of doing kind of graduate level work, but they're all, they're all undergrads at Linfield. And so it's a lot of training. It's a lot of uh, supervision. It's a lot of um, you know, helping uh, with all of the various parts of an archive. Um, meanwhile, trying to get the Oregon Wine History Archive off the ground, because that was sort of the, the bell cow from the start. That was the thing that was easy to advertise. That was the thing that was easy to get support for. 
Um, and so the first, I remember the first big thing we did, we wrote, we wrote an article together, Rachel and I did, for the Oregon Historical Quarterly um, about our collection. It was a, basically a collection overview. What is the Oregon Wine History Archive and why, why do you have it and what, what can people do with it? And for me, that was the, we interviewed someone the other day who used the term drinking from a fire hose. That was a drinking from a fire hose moment for me because at that point, I had a familiarity with Linfield history. That was the first thing Rachel asked me to do was kind of familiarize myself with the history of the institution. Um, and I had, you know, I had worked with archives in the past. I worked with digital collections in the past. I had a kind of an idea. But wine was a totally foreign concept to me. I had no background in wine. Uh, I did not grow up around wine. My parents don't drink wine. They drink a little bit now because I make them, but they don't <laughs> drink much wine. They didn't grow up drinking wine. Um, and I grew up in Eugene aware there was wine in Oregon, but only in the vaguest possible sense, and with no interest or knowledge in anything about wine. And so for me, I had the, I had the prejudice and preconception that many people do about wine, that it was a, a drink for snobs, that it was a special occasion kind of thing, that it was only a certain kind of person who enjoyed wine, and I probably wouldn't enjoy being around those, that kind of person that much. I had all these preconceptions. But Rachel, Rachel assured me that that was not how Oregon wine was, was and I said, okay, let's, let's find out, you know, let's dig in. And so we wrote this article together, and for me that was, like I said, that was the fire hose. It was so much information. There were so many names of people and places and vineyards and brands and wineries and varietals and terminology and all of that. I had no idea what varietals were. I had no idea what AVAs were. I had no idea why Burgundy was a big deal. I had no idea of any of this. This was all like coming at me. And I had no idea who, who these pioneers were, who, who Dickie Rath was, who Susan Sokolbosser was. I, you know, now I'm meeting them and I'm expected to not only be able to talk with them, but to understand why it was important to talk with them, understand why it was important to have their collection. So that first couple of years for me was just like, it was overwhelming and it was I was always uncomfortable being around wine people because I had this like limited knowledge and I knew at some point in the conversation they were going to say something that was going to go right over my head and then how am I going to deal with that like what am I, what's my response going to be when they use a term that I should know and I don't talk about a region talk about a grape talk about a person uh, and I don't know and I, so for the longest time I was like I would only talk to people if I had Rachel with me if I had my buddy system you know I have to have someone there to like help and um, and and it was never that the industry was intentionally intimidating to me it was just so far out of my comfort zone in terms of a subject matter that I was I was nervous for a long time um, and that was that was the first couple of years for me that was like 2012 2013 2014 um, and then it changes at some point in there, but we can get to that. Okay, awesome. Um, what a what a great time to have started the the archive <laughs> yeah. uh, for Oregon wine history because you know for the most part all the the founding generation were were there. Yeah, you know. yeah, absolutely. It was a huge thing for us at the time because it was the people themselves setting this collection up. It wasn't their descendants and their ancestors, and it wasn't uh, some long long dead industry that we were trying to talk about it was it was the opposite I mean, the opposite problem it was too much there was too many it was growing too fast uh, we had to figure out how to try to do our job while in like a swimming pool full of information that was that was slowly going up every day more brands more vineyards um, but like you said having the pioneers around was hugely valuable from the beginning the archive the goal was to have it be um, an immersive experience for the students working with us, uh, you know, um, 
uh, experiential learning is a huge part of any liberal arts college education. Is certainly at Linfield, it's right there in the right there in our values as an institution. And what better experiential learning than actually like working with a collection from a pioneer who you're sitting next to? We have photos of our students with Dick Erath, with with Myron Redford, with Susan Sokolblosser, with many uh, Marge Volstek up at Oak Knoll, meeting the Campbells at Alcove. All of these pioneer families, like you say, still around and not only willing to be, but excited to be in this project, excited to work with students, excited to have their collections immortalized in some way. Um, that was just incredibly rewarding personally, but also really rewarding for the, the value brought to students um, who probably in many cases thought they were just taking a work-study job um, and just to see what could happen with it. We've had, we had students join us who graduated to go on into archive school. We had students who've gone, gone into the wine industry. Uh, we've had students who've gone and worked at the Smithsonian. Uh, I have students with me now who, now that wine studies is a major at Linfield, who are coming to Linfield for wine, doing the, doing the education thing with wine studies with Greg Jones, and also doing the archive thing with me and meeting everybody in the industry and having this huge immersive experience. Uh, and, and they're gonna graduate with so much information, so many contacts, so many ideas um, that if they, if they do choose to become part of the industry here or elsewhere, they're going to have this huge leg up and, be, and, and do a great service for Linfield when people say, oh, that's a Linfield graduate, that's awesome. Look at how much they can do uh, just having graduated. So that part for us, for again, personally, I've loved, I've loved meeting these people, but also like at a professional level, having them there with their collections and with that interaction with the students has been, has been pretty priceless. Awesome. What happened next uh, with the project? So the initial goal of the, the initial vision of the archive was, I think, unintentionally was fairly limited just because archive, an archive is not something that most people are familiar with. It's not, not a term you come into contact with every day. It's not something that people sit around thinking about what an archive is very often. Most people have familiarity with, familiarity with the museum. Um, archive is different from a museum in a few ways. The, the biggest way to me is an archive kind of collects everything. And it collects it in a pre from a preservation model more than a display model. There are, there are certainly exceptions to that, but that's kind of the general rule to me, the general sense is museums collect amazing things that are usually kind of three-dimensional and able, you're able to show them off. And they keep, certainly they keep other things behind closed doors, but you go to a museum for the chance to interact with materials Whereas with archives, when I give an archives tour, I'm always a little worried it's going to be disappointing because all it is is a bunch of boxes on the shelf, and it's and it's not it's not a super sexy tour. But if you look inside the boxes, there is just a treasure trove of materials. So, the initial vision for the archive, which I think owes is owed, there there are a lot of people who to whom that vision, um, are, so it's over. There are a number of people who owned that vision, who created that, but I think Susan Sokol-Blosser is one of the biggest ones. And in graduate school, she had worked in, a, in an archive. She worked in a special collections library, I believe in North Carolina, huh. um, as a graduate student. And she'd worked with personal manuscript collections from some of the families in the area, which, of course, a much older history than even on the West Coast. Um, and she actually, um, part of our archival collection from Sokol-Blosser is her first finding aid of all of these, all of the papers she worked with when she was a graduate student. Um, so anyway, she had this notion for what an archive was. She had actually been in one, worked in one, had this vision of a, the physical space with the climate control and the nice archival safe folders, archival safe boxes, all in a row, all labeled behind locked doors and safe and, and, and accessible but safe. 
Um, and that was the vision of the archive. That was we get we're going to get the pioneer collections. Um, mostly in the all, the first ones were all Yamhill County, except for the Ponzi's across the county line in Washington County. Um, we're going to get them all in this initial kind of donation. We're going to collect them. We're going to organize them. We're going to preserve them and digitize, and then make them available to researchers. And that was kind of the extent of the vision, um, which is an amazing vision. Um, but because of there wasn't that many, it was uh, four collections to start with. Um, and then a few more that trickled in after that. And none of them were particularly huge by archival standards, although they seem pretty big in the archives now. Um, it was not a, a long-term project. And, and Rachel, uh, because of her training and her background, was able to get it set up, get students hired and trained, get them working on these collections. And within a couple years, that part had been done. We had gotten those collections into a finished state where a researcher could come in uh, or a student could come in, or a faculty member at Linfield could come in, or a consumer, or a journalist, or filmmaker, or author could come in and view these archives um, and use them uh, as you know primary source material, and that was the whole point. But we real we got to that point, and we realized that was as far as the vision had really gone, and that was what Tom Helly, the president, had hoped to achieve. That was what the the pioneers had hoped to achieve was to get these things to get the start. But then what next? And the what next was a big question. We, Rachel and I originally thought um, that we would find another archive to model ourselves after and kind of follow their path. And we were kind of chagrined and also surprised to find there wasn't really a wine archive in the world doing what we had thought we would want to do, which was to tell this kind of story of the industry through all the different individual players in it. Um, there are wine archives all over the place. Many of them are of actual wine. Some of them are wine libraries of books. Some of them are a small version of this collection, but um, we were given this name Oregon Wine History Archive, and we were given this amazing space on campus. We wanted to be something that represented Oregon and the industry, not just Yamhill County winemaking families from the 1960s and 70s, as cool as that would be. We wanted to represent more, and also there's only so many pioneers. Like there's, you know, depending on your definition, there's like 10 or so pioneer families of the Wyoming Valley that got things kicked off in the first decade. Um, and once you get all those collections, then what are you doing next? Uh, you know, so we made the determination that we wanted to be a much because of the nature of the industry and because of the nature of, of what we had, we wanted to be a much more like current archive and, and keep track of things as they were happening, not sitting around waiting for people to get ready to give us things 10, 20, 30 years down the road. We want that to be part of it, but we want to be doing something in the meantime. So the oral history interviews, which we're doing now, this is very meta, um, came to be a came to be like the, 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 the next thing we were going to try. So in 2013, uh, Rachel secured a grant from the Oregon Wine Board, and we went to, uh, when I say we, the royal we, I did not go. The archi archives went to uh, the Rogue Valley for a week, Umpqua Valley for a week, and did what I call kind of like a barnstorming tour of the area, of the, of the pioneering families of those areas. And so we have interviews in there from, you know, Scott Henry and from um, Philippe Girardet and other people in the industry who'd been around there for a while. Um, we did we, there was we did partnerships with with local historical organizations in the area. We did reception at the end of each trip. We got oral history interviews. We did digital collections of. We took photographs. We scanned photographs, scanned documents, all that stuff. Brought it back, um, and then put, put it up, created a collection, shared it with the world. You know, and that was really really powerful. And also kind of gives you an idea if you can do that in a week, working out of a hotel in Roseburg. You know, you what, what can you do if that's what you kind of set your mind to do? So. 
2014 the same project, but this time we went east, Columbia Valley for a week, uh, Hood River area for a week, Walla Walla for a week. Um, so over the two summers, uh, about a month total spent on the road doing these projects. So that, then we're talking to you know Lonnie Wright and Norma Kibben and, and folks out in the east, uh, you know, and doing the same kind of project. And again, realizing the power of that. Um, instead of asking you to wait until you're at a point in your life where you feel comfortable to part with all of these materials. First, you have to have collected them, then you have to feel comfortable parting with them, and then you have to like actually do the parting, um, and then we have to do the organization, which is great, we can do that, but instead of waiting for that moment to happen, we can ask you, hey, can you take an hour or two out of your day, sit down with us on camera, tell us your story, We'll take some photographs of it. We'll have a little mini collection. And then if you have, if you choose to, you can add to that collection at any time. You can give us materials that day. You can give us materials 50 years from now. We'll have this, this archival collection that tells your story. But at least in the meantime, we'll have your words on camera. Um, and that became something we were pretty enamored with at that point. Um, and so uh, once that trip ended, 2015, was when we kind of started the next step and we started slowly growing the oral, oral history program. And um, at this point, I hadn't really been part of the oral histories because most of them had been done on the road and I had been the one kind of staying home minding the shop while, while uh, Rachel and one of our students were, was out doing the, the road tripping. Uh, and I was still at this point not super comfortable talking to wine industry folks yet or even talking to donors at this point yet. I was still kind of learning the ropes. I'm, I'm, I'm still to this day pretty green when it comes to this stuff. So uh, that was, those were, those were some interesting days. I, I remember bringing in my first like archival collection where I was the point person on it. And I remember not having any idea how to prepare for that. How do you prepare for someone who's bringing in their husband's collection who had died a few years ago? Uh, this is uh, Phil DeVito's collection, one of my personal favorites because of this, because of how uh, personally involved I was. Um, Phil DeVito was the cellar master at Salishan Lodge for a long time after being a sommelier in Portland for a long time. Um, and I was meeting Janice DeVito, his widow. Um, and so I remember sitting on the couch in the library talking with her um, and listening to her talk about Phil and, and feeling like the, the, the responsibility slash burden, but also like the honor of taking on someone's legacy and preserving it and how much it meant to her and how much it would mean to his friends and family to take this collection of materials in and create an, or, an archival collection that was something that you, they could view online, was something they could come into the archives and enjoy. Um, but I remember the conversations and, and it's such a big thing because legacy is such an important thing to people. Um, what is your legacy? What is the legacy of your, of your, of your loved ones? Um, and I remember being just so nervous and worked up and then I went home, I remember talking to Janice and she was there for a couple of hours and we toured the archive and we talked about Phil, and we talked about his collection. And, and I remember going home and just being completely like wiped out that night. It was so much work, it's so much work to like actively listen and actively engage and think about all that kind of stuff. How are you gonna make this person happy? What, what can we do? What is our responsibility? You know, all of that. Um, that's what I was doing while the, while this, the barnstorming was happening. Uh, so that, that collection came in. Janice remains a very close friend to this day. We had lunch during the, or dinner together during the pandemic, which was awesome. A very spread out dinner uh, last summer. Um, it was wonderful to see her, but she's been a great friend and an advocate of the archives since. Um, and that, but that took, that was effort. And I was like, okay, this is, that's what this is. This is a lot of effort on our part. Um, but look at the payoff we get, look at the collections we get and the, and the way we're able to pay tribute to people's legacies. So, um, so we did that and, and then we started in 2015, we started doing more oral history interviews closer to campus. Rather than planning these big trips, we were like, well, we're here. Let's go see what the area has. And 
that's when I started doing some parts of the interviews. So Rachel and I would, would split the interviews sometimes, where one of us would start and the other would finish, or we would kind of go back and forth. And, um, and I was still super trepidatious, super trepidatious at this point, because I, again, had a knowledge. I had learned a lot. I had talked to people, but I still was like a novice when it came to all of this stuff. And I was a novice at drinking wine. I was a novice at talking about wine. Uh, I remember one of my first interviews, the first one that, the one that kind of put me over the top in terms of like, this is gonna be a lot of fun, was Stephen Carey at Yama Valley Vineyards. Um, we had reached out to him um, and he was excited to do an interview. We went out to Yamhill Valley. It's a beautiful day, lunch like today. Um, we were sitting and doing this interview and he, we did the research on these interviews uh, and we, you know, he had a huge part in setting up Steamboat, the Steamboat Conference in Oregon, which is a huge part of the industry. He had, he had played an integral role in the Burgundy Challenge in the mid 80s that put some Oregon wineries on the map and, and helped save a few that were struggling to sell wine at that point. And so you have this no notion in your head, there, here's this guy, he's an older guy, he's got, accomplished all of this stuff, he's in wine, he's probably a little full of himself. You know, you're thinking maybe this guy, you know, this guy has accomplished a lot, you know, would it really be, we'd really hold it against him if he was kind of pompous about it. And like, obviously, if any of you know Stephen Carey, who's was like the nicest guy in the world, um, he told us his story, he was, he was patient and thoughtful and funny and articulate and like everything that Stephen Carey was. And we had students there and he engaged with them and he talked to them about their future plans and talked to them about what they're doing with the archives. And then we did the interview and then we sat in the sun and we tried some of his rosé that had just come out. And it's just like, it's just like being in a music store. The, the wine just tastes better when you've just interviewed the person who made it, you know? So uh, it's, music always sounds better in a music shop too, a music store too. So um, that was like, okay, well, this is what the job is like. That's a lot of work, but man, that's a great reward to like have that story and have that. And then now you have this like, this friend in the industry, you have this ally in the industry who, who you have shared this moment with, shared this time with, and you've preserved this story for. Um, and I did, we interviewed Stephen twice because we did one interview entirely about, I think entirely about Steamboat, I can't remember. But we did kind of a general interview and then one more specific. And, and I remember I, was part, I did part of the interview and I was, I was honestly like shaking nervous because I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna ask a dumb question or he's gonna say something that I'm supposed to know and I'm gonna not gonna know what to say about it because I don't, I'm not gonna know the term. And he, it was the opposite of that. Again, just incredibly gracious and warm. And I thought, okay, this is, this is cool. Like this is cool because this person has accomplished so much and is clearly so well liked and respected in the industry and yet is so down to earth and so charming and so nice and has such a good memory of this moment, these moments, that this is so valuable. Like this is so valuable to, every, to everyone and I wanna do this, this is what I wanna do. So we started to grow the program at that point and I really, I got to really enjoy the outreach part of it. I got to really enjoy the like contacting people and selling them and I will admit that the, in the early days I was very verbose in my emails and I'm glad, thank you to all of those people in 15, 16 and 17 and so on who replied to my emails and made it through them. They've gotten much more economical since then, I promise. <laughs> um, but I, that was a lot of fun it was, and it was fun. We, we involved the students in the whole process. We would identify people we wanted to interview, the students. We would be assigned to, to do questions for them, to research them online or, uh, or however they needed to research them, come up with interview questions. We'd meet as a team, we'd go over the questions, we'd you know, reword and reorder and take some out and add some in. Then we'd go to the interview as a team and all the students would have a role, whether it was videography, camera work, whether it was uh, later to become social media, whether it was taking pictures, documenting the day. And we would 
and then we would, and we'd have the drive there, we'd have the drive back, where we'd talk about the interview, talk about the interviewee, what did we learn, what was exciting about it. Then we'd have the post-production where the students would do video editing. Um, so we, it was an immersive process, again, an experiential process for students, um, and they got to enjoy the spoils of it. They got to enjoy spending afternoons in settings like this with the sun shining and the birds chirping um, and, the, and, and wine around um, uh, and all of that. And, making these connections. Um, I, I often joke that like doing an oral history interview with someone, if you do it right, it's like a very intense first date because <laughs> you're like learning everything about the person really, really quickly. Um, and, and you're hearing stories that, that um, maybe their friends don't know. Maybe some of their family doesn't know. Maybe no one has ever heard. We've, we are sometimes a, a soapbox for people. We are sometimes a psychiatrist couch for people. We are sometimes a uh, you know, a friend for people. Sometimes, uh, you know, we are an enemy for people. If we say something they don't agree with, and then we have a chance to, to go to com to be combative about it, that's sort of the role is uh, is to get people to tell their story. And um, as we've gotten better at it, and as we've um, as we've gotten into the industry more, it's only been more rewarding. We ask, we at, we prepare better, we research better, we ask better questions. Now we're more, we know more connections in the industry. We're able to make leaps. Uh, that we didn't make before, and so, um, and that's what we started doing more. Uh, we at that point in, in the mid to th mid twenty teens. Um, Nobody knows how to say that. Now. I know yeah. twenty fifteen sixteen <laughs> era. era um, we started to to bring to bring in more oral history interviews each year, um, and as well as while we were still doing the original, as as collections came in, as physical collections came in, we we're still working with those as well. So students were hired and trained in a variety of things, everything from researching questions and all the parts of the video videography process to archival collections and how to handle that to like donor relations. How do we conduct ourselves when we're in the field with people that we are asking from, whether we're asking them for time or for money or for materials or for some collection of those things. How do we, you know, and these are like 18, 19, 20 year old students. They were learning these things and there were some bumps along the way, but there were also some like massive rewards and payoffs along the way and some amazingly talented students that came through. How do you decide who to interview? <laughs> Rachel and I decided early on, and it's an interesting question because when you start with the pioneers of an industry and you start with the famous names and the famous families, you, the, the first obstacle you run into when you try to expand that is someone saying, well, I'm not Dick Erath. Why would you <laughs> want to talk to me? I'm not, I'm not Susan Sokolbosser. My story's not that interesting. Um, and so when we started, that was the conception of us in the industry was this idea that you have to be X amount famous to enter this door. And so Rachel and I very, very clearly decided and early on decided that there was not gonna be any kind of barrier. There was not gonna be any, you have to be this old, this famous, this well-known, this, this long in the industry, in any of that, it was gonna be a true like archive of the industry in every conceivable way. Um, so whether you had been in it 50 years or were just about to do your first harvest, whether you had made tons and tons of wine or never made wine at all and had a whole different role in the industry, we wanted the stories to be. So that's a, that's a total cop-out, which is to say that's everyone in the industry, uh, which is a job security for decades, <laughs> millennia perhaps, because there are so many people. But on a more realistic scale, we looked for people who would represent that story. And so in the, in the, in the early, time, early days of the, of the archive, we focused on the people who'd been around it a while. Those are the names we were familiar with. Neither Rachel or I 
had a real strong grasp of like all of the names yet. There, if you if you had left the industry before 2011 or started it not too long before that, we might not have an idea who you were. It, took, it takes a while to get that kind of pulse of an industry and that kind of overview. So we stuck with names we knew and that, or, or, or names who were recommended to us. And so uh, we did a lot of pioneer interview, what we call pioneer family interviews in the, in the early days, but also um, a lot of just kind of well-known names like Stephen Carey, who'd been around for a long time and were well-known, well-respected, um, and probably were recommended to us by someone else we, we talked to. Um, as we grew, and I will say here that uh, Rachel left at the end of 2016, and I took over as director in 2017, um, and I owe a huge debt to Tom Helley uh, and, and my boss Susan Barnes-White for taking that leap with me and letting me take over this project because um, it was not a gimme sure thing that I would be able to do it and I really appreciate that they did that and I'm hopefully, hopefully happy with how it has turned out. Um, when I, For the record, you should not suck up to your boss in an oral history interview. <laughs> ne yeah. Neither of them are my boss anymore, so I feel okay with I feel okay doing it now. Now, now it's good. Uh, but it was it was at the time I was you know and I and again a lot of trepidation. Uh, Rachel had a much stronger background in this than I did, and most of what I learned I learned from her. So. Um, for me, it was the first couple of months of, of being in charge. Like, oh my god, like, oh my god, how am I going to do all this stuff? Like, Rachel did so much stuff. How am I, gonna, you know, how am I going to find my way? And so that was it was nice. And and I will say that uh, the first student I hired is Tia Elder, sitting behind the camera today. Hired her in September 2017 and got the ball really rolling for the next era of the archive, which we'll get to in a second. But, um, but so. My interest at this point had really gone to oral history interviews. I really, this is, I am an English major in college, English and communication, so this is like right in my alley. Um, stories, uh, people uh, are the, for me, the like kind of the lifeblood of my work. Uh, I've always said that this is, if we were the, if we were the Oregon Wine Archive, I wouldn't be super excited about my job because wine is great, but it's not something to keep me captivated all the time. But wine history, wine people, wineries, wine stories, that is what is captivating. And the wine for me is a vehicle to that. It's a vehicle that brings interesting people into the industry and captivates them, and then they captivate me. And if I drink their wine and enjoy it, that's awesome. And that has happened many times, but the wine for me is a secondary part of the process behind the people. So when we started in 2017, uh, when I started, when I took over in 2017, I decided that it was like we we're going to go, we're going to start doing more interviews. Like this is going to be, the summers are going to be interview time. We're going to do, you know, as much as we can. Um, I should back up and say that Rachel and I, when Rachel and I were in the archives, she was full time in the archives. I was half time and still doing my other job half time. Um, when she left, um, and since she's left, we've had I've had half-time help on and off, and then students. So this is not a huge number of people here. So we are limited in how much we can do. But we have pushed those limits, I would say, the last couple of years, um, and and gotten really rolling. So um, we did more in 2017, more in 2018, and then really took the leap in 2019. We did 100 interviews in 2019. We did over 100 interviews in 2020 during a pandemic, which. Uh, Looking back, I'm really glad we did. I'll, we can tell. I can tell 2020 stories after, if, after if you want. But that was a um, that was a an interesting and unique challenge. But also, I think one that was really welcomed by the industry. So, and, uh, we're, and we're off and rolling this year. So, tell me a 2020 story because uh, it, it's obviously we all just recently lived through this, but. Um, you were collecting that data in real time. And you know, in 2025, people will look back, even now you can look back and, and uh, some of that, that flavor, that grit, that fear uh, is gone. And now you can kind of see it in the, in the rear view mirror when it's in the uh, windshield, yeah. it's totally different. 
Yeah, so in 2020, we were off and rolling. I had, I mentioned to you earlier, I'd hired uh, a, an amazing crop of students, including uh, Kiana Anderson, Shelby Cook, Lily Hanridge, at this point, Megan Stanek, and Sophia Zielinski. I wanna call them all out because they are, I've all been awesome and part of this growth. Um, and we had developed into this kind of machine of interviews, like we would, I would split the questions up, the students would dive in and they come up with amazing questions, uh, research questions for people. We'd, we'd churn through the interviews, we'd do the editing, the social media, all of the stuff that all the students would share in it so no one was too overwhelmed. And we would just drive around and do these, and do these interviews. So in 2019, between Memorial Day and Labor Day, we did 57 interviews in wine country. We drove almost 3,000 miles together up and down 99, <laughs> mostly but not entirely. Um, and you know, that all of the memories from that for us, I think, are some of my favorite because it's, it's eating in weird restaurants in like small towns that don't have really restaurants to eat in after you've done an interview. Um, it's drinking, it's you know, driving to Elkton to do interviews there and, and eating at Tyler Bradley's dining room while he's feeding us after an interview. It's, um, you know, those kind of memories. Um, and that's, to me, it's so funny because that's what people in the industry talk about is like you, you go to these weird places and you share hospitality, you share food, you share wine, you share stories. Um, and that was for us the chance to be part of that, even though I would, I, I still, we still not totally, I'm not entirely sure if we call ourselves part of the industry or not. We're definitely on the periphery. Um, but that chance to get to know people on that level and to share that kind of stuff and to share it as a group of, with the students was just like priceless. It's, it's just amazing and some of the, some of the f happiest like work memories I'll ever have is, is being able to introduce them to some of these people and some of these stories and share. I mean, I remember we interviewed um, Steve Gerard. I remember interviewing Steve Gerard at Benton Lane and then going and eating pizza in like Monroe, I think we're in Monroe. <laughs> and like, I remember sitting around, we we're all just tired and it was warm out and we were just happy, happily exhilarated and exhausted. This was like 2018 maybe. And sitting around eating that pizza and I was just like, this is pretty great. Like, this is pretty nice. Like, uh, this is a, you know, we work hard and then we enjoy it. And I guess, again, how the industry does it. You work really hard, but you work toward a point where you can enjoy it with friends and, and colleagues. So anyway, 2020, we were off and rolling in 2020. Um, I had this team still all together. We were doing great. March, we did some interviews. They started getting a little, started getting a little weird uh, early March and everybody was thinking, you know, we started, we stopped shaking hands. We started doing elbow bumps and, and foot taps and, and thinking, okay, well, this is kind of weird and like, but everybody's still good. Like, what, you know, and then of course, like a year ago today, in fact, the world kind of started shutting down um, and uh, suddenly, uh, all the plans we had made, um, which included for me, I had still I had started to plan a trip to Southern Oregon to do our second round of interviews in Southern Oregon. I had so many people in mind, I was excited to meet, but also just all of the interviews I had, all this, this great team of students that we had worked and worked so hard together, um, was I just stopped, I, just like with everybody else. You have these plans and they're gone. And so we were sent home to work. I worked from home from mid-March into June. Um, and we did all of the digital projects that you could do and tried to stay sane um, and tried to stay safe uh, like everybody else. And then we got told and told around June 1st that we were coming back to work at Linfield and that students were going to be here in the fall as normal. And we all thought, oh, what? <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, I, we appreciated the optimism, but I don't think any of us were too terribly sure that that was going to happen. And so we came back to the office. Uh, to get set up and, and sure enough, we, we pulled off an amazing fall semester of 2020, all things considered. And uh, other than one bump in the road early this year after the holiday break, we've had a very successful and healthy sem spring semester 2021. 
and we're all very hopeful that by fall 2021 we will all be in a much better place for this kind of stuff but when we came back I thought you know if I'm back at work like could we still do interviews and so you start thinking about like well the interview process itself is fairly socially distant already we're already sitting across a distance from each other um, I, if I trim down the number of people in the interview and we do we clean our equipment and we like, okay, well, we might be able to do this. Like, what, what's the industry going to think? So I talked, to, you know, I got it all squared away with Linfield. I got it all squared away with students. And then I started reaching out to the industry. And again, I was really trepidatious. I didn't want to be the guy who was like making everyone feel uncomfortable or like making them say, well, is this going to be safe or, you know? And so I reached out. I kind of dipped my toe in the water with some people we had scheduled interviews for in the spring that we'd had to postpone. And they got back to me faster than anybody's ever gotten back to me and said, yes. Anybody who's not in my family and not on a Zoom call, I would love to meet right now. <laughs> and so let's do it. Uh, so, um, you know, you will be safe. We'll wear masks. We'll be in outdoor spaces as much as possible and we'll do this. And so we got rolling again in 2020 and we were safe. Uh, we were, we kept, we kept minimal staff. We cleaned our equipment. We stayed distant. We stayed in masks. Um, and we did a ton of interviews, as you said, in the moment. So we have people, we have people we, I mean, in March, we interviewed John Groshaw. Uh, sadly enough, on the day that he had been told that his tasting room had to shut down because of COVID, like that was when they started shutting things down or mid, maybe March 6th or 7th, somewhere in there. Um, and that was rough. I felt really bad. I would have should have rescheduled probably, and maybe I will schedule John another time. But um, so we saw that part of it. Then we saw the June part of it where it's like, okay, now we've been in it. Now it's like, now it's not a mystery anymore. Now it's not going to be like, oh, if we take the weekend off, things will be fine by Monday. Um, and now we know we're in it for a long haul. Things are not getting better and they're in fact getting worse. Um, what's it going to do to our business? What's it going to do to the industry in general? And so we have all of those moments. Everybody we interviewed, we asked about how COVID had affected them um, and how it was affecting the industry and how they were going to come out of it and what adjustments they had made, how they'd pivoted. And so that was, um, it's going to be, like you say, supremely valuable to people to watch those kind of, those, the kind of attitudes ebb and flow and, um, and see now we're still asking about it. We'll be asking about it for a while, I assume. Um, see, the industry has made it through uh, despite COVID, despite an awful harvest last year in a number of ways. Um, still here, still making and selling Oregon wine. Uh, still a lot of enthusiasm for it. Um, and a lot of interesting pivots that have been made. And it'll be interesting to see what sticks. But um, 2020 for us was that weight, that balancing that the the weight of we don't want to be dangerous we want to be responsible and safe for both ourselves and for others but also here's a story to be told here's history to be captured in the moment how can we do that um, and I think we did a pretty good job of it awesome um, speaking of the the physical archive can you think of any like physical items that stick out to you as like man I'm so glad we have that <laughs> um, yeah uh, there are a few um, I, I, it's funny, people always ask that question similar to that, or, or what's your favorite, and it's, and it's hard to choose a favorite. Uh, not, not, not even saying that politically, just saying it is really hard to choose a favorite. Um, there are some what I call perfect archival items back there. Um, Rachel's favorite was always the a notebook from Jim McDaniel that he kept. Uh, Jim McDaniel was a grape grower in Dundee Hills. Um, he kept this notebook for like 12 years. It's basically a grape diary um, where you have, from an aesthetic perspective, you have this 
actual person's handwriting and different inks on different days. And um, you have, so it's aesthetically it's cool from a data perspective. It talks about weather, it talks about climate, it talks about bricks, it talks about soil, it talks about all of those kinds of things. Um, and then from a historical perspective, it, talk, it covers a decade plus in the 70s and, and 80s, early 80s of grape growing in the Wyoming Valley. And it talks, I mean, he writes in there about going out in 1980 and, and um, wiping ash off of his grapevines from after the Mount St. Helens eruption. He talks about what he was planting and what was working at a time when there was still not a lot of clarity about what was going to work and how to plant necessarily, how to grow. So you see the evolution of the, of the grape grower um, and again, we, we met and interviewed Jim McDaniel as well, a lovely, lovely man and his wife Donna Jean, who've been great supporters of ours. Uh, and so there's that aspect of it too. Um, Phil DeVito's collection I mentioned before, my personal favorite, I think just from the perspective of like how much of myself went into bringing that collection, how that was the first time I had done that. And so it was like such a revelatory experience for me. Uh, and that collection also has some really cool stuff in it because Phil was a Psalm and he belonged to a lot of the, the societies of wine. So he has, it has his tasting cup, it has his corkscrew and his little like um, co uh, co uh, sorry, crumb brush uh, for cleaning off the edge of the table because Salishan was black tie, you know, fine dining. And so he was in tuxedo and he was all with the regalia and he was, and the table was clear and the food was prepared table side. And so we have those kinds of materials, some of my favorites. Um, uh, and, and then the other thing that we didn't expect when we started um, was wine. We didn't actually expect to have wine. We made no preparations to uh, receive wine bottles. Um, I don't know why. We just never thought of it. We're a history archive. We're going to get papers and photographs. We're not going to get wine. So when wine started coming in, we had to make uh, some corrections. Uh, we purchased some archival doll boxes, which fit a bottle of wine perfectly <laughs> for some of our favorite bottles. And then when it got, it got to be too much, we bought some wine racks that are now in the archives that are bolted to the wall in there. And some of, so some of our wine is on display if you come into the archives and some of it's boxed up in the back. And to make sure it's appropriate quality for the archive, you taste some, We right? do, we taste, yeah, okay. every, every bottle gets tasted. No, okay. um, that is archival wine. That's, as far as I'm concerned, will never be opened uh, again. Some of the bottles are empty. Uh, some of the bottles are like half full because I assume like cork fell in and something. I don't know, I don't want to know why they're half full. Uh, most of them are full. Well, they're um, archivists, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we do have bottles of wine in the archives that are for other purposes that are not archival wine. Um, but for example, we, we, uh, all of our students are underage, so they go to a lot of wine places where they can't imbibe as students. Um, so we save bottles that we collect during our travels and on their 21st birthday, they get a big box of wine from the archives to oh, get them started awesome. on their wine journey. So we have boxes of wine in the archives now that are being saved for our many under, undergraduate underage students at the moment. Um, so we do have, and we, do have, we also have wine back there that we use for, you know, back when that was the thing for having receptions and stuff. Yeah. It will be again. Uh, so we got some bottles that I'm very, I'm, uh, that I'm, I mean, all the bottles right there are super cool. Um, we have a bottle of Dickie Rath's first vintage from 1972 wow. that he uh, recorked at some point with a plastic cork and ruined. So it is definitely not wine anymore at this point. Not, not, anyone, not in anyone's definition, probably very expensive vinegar. Um, so we have the bottle of that. We have an empty bottle of the 75 South Block from Irie that was an award-winning, the first award-winning Oregon wine, really, the first one to put Oregon wine on the map. Um, we have a bottle of wine, from, some bottles of wine from Jesus Guillen's early vintages at Guillen Family, uh, Guillen, Guillen Family Wines? Is that, um, we have a couple of bottles from Jesus Guillen's first vintages, um, and Jesus was a great friend of the archives, and we had uh, great plans together. Uh, his loss a couple of years ago was 
devastating on a number of levels, devastating to the industry, um, devastating to the, to the archive and the plans we had, but also like on a personal level, he was almost exactly my age. And that was a real, that's the first one that really like hit in terms of like, oh my God, like mortality. <laughs> Something that we had just interviewed Jesus a few months ago, he was like 37 and totally, you know, about to just take over the world of wine and, and now this. And so um, we have a couple bottles of his that I treasure as well. So there are some favorites back there. So a number of other objects that I'm not thinking of at the moment, but those are kind of the ones that come to mind as, as kind of the iconic objects. Well, and I, I think that's so special to, you know, not just focus on the very important story of the founders and founding families, but people at all levels, because you never know uh, yeah. uh, when people will pass and, yeah. and what treasures with uh, Jesus Guillen and um, Sanjay Lahodi and, and yeah. probably many, several others, yeah. um, like, Carey. To, ha to have that yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, for the families yeah. uh, to be able to go and to listen to the story and things like that, because you always assume there's more time to ask those questions. You don't. It's not something you necessarily want to think about as part of your job as an archive, but it is definitely part of your job as an archive is to preserve people's stories just in case. And the, for us, the first one, the first person we lost who we'd interviewed was John Bradley. I mentioned Tyler Bradley earlier. John Bradley, the founder of Bradley Vineyards down in Elkton. Um, obviously, Elkton is, is nowhere near the heart of Oregon wine country. Uh, John Bradley was not anyone terribly famous in any way. He was a farmer in Elkton who grew grapes and made some wine. and. Um, and was a remarkably nice man, hard, hard person to get to sit down for more than 20 minutes and talk. Um, he told us his story um, in 2013 and he died not too long after, I wanna say maybe six months or so after that, uh, unexpectedly, you know? And so that, arc, that interview was like the last thing he did of record of, of, the, of, of, of telling that kind of story. And so I remember at the time how much that, how hard that hit and then in the same time how glad we were that we had done it his interview was used by um, a couple of the obituary writers who wrote who wrote obituaries they watched his interview and quoted him in it and photos we'd taken that day were some of the last photos he had you know and so we had photos of him from that day uh that were valuable uh for that those purposes as well so yeah it's definitely part of the job it's not so, again that's something you want to think about i don't i've, I've had people in the past tell me like when that would they tell me to reach out to someone who's being maybe being resistant to being interviewed. They're like, well, just tell them, you know, tell them about Jesus, you know, tell them, that, you know, Jesus, died. I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy who's like, you know, death's just waiting over your shoulder any minute. You should interview with, you should interview with us or else, you know, like, I'm not going to be that guy. But there is a, there is a, the truth of the matter, like you said, with Jesus, with Sanjev, uh, we lost Stephen Carey, uh, Elizabeth Chambers, uh, Patty Green. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting a few of people we've lost recently. We just lost Jim Marsh over the weekend. Um, um, at least he lived a ripe old 95, so he had a great and full life, and I'm, I'm a huge loss for the industry nonetheless. But there are people we had met that you have lost, and and you and it's and it's a, it's sad. It saddens you, but it also makes you. It kind of reinvigorates you to the value of what you do. You're not just doing. You're not just as maybe your colleagues think you do sometimes driving out into wine country and hanging out and drinking wine all day. You're actually doing a service for people and you're actually doing a service to history and historians um, and to families. As you said, many of these people we interview are not being interviewed by other people. This, we're not interviewing necessarily just the, just the famous people, just the, uh, the people that, that reporters go to, or the people that have PR agencies, or the people that have tons of money. We're interviewing everyone. And in some cases, we're gonna interview someone like Jesus who we think we're interviewing at the start of a meteoric career, and then we'll go back and talk to him again 20 years later and see how things went. And it doesn't turn out that way, but at least we did the first interview, and at least we have that 
that for the record. So it's again, it's, it's not something you think about, but it is certainly part of the work we do. Absolutely. Are there any stories, protecting anonymity of course, uh, that, um, <laughs> that you think are just outrageously funny or, um, yeah. or they got left on the cutting room floor? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, they, there are many stories. Of, uh, many stories have been told off the record, many stories that have been on the record and then taken off the record. <laughs> um, I remember we interviewed uh, uh, Bob McRitchie, um, who was the winemaker, Sokol Blosser, their first winemaker. Um, it was, that was a funny story, actually. We were, we were looking through an archival collection of newspaper articles and saw this article, this feature that had been done. Bob McRitchie hired as Sokol Blosser winemaker, and we're like, Never heard of Bob McRitchie. Again, we have this, this gap. If, it's, if you left the industry before 2011 and your name is not on the actual label, we might not know who you are yet. So we look at Bob McRitchie. Turns out Bob McRitchie is A, Rich Cushman's father-in-law. Like, okay, we know Rich. That's cool. Uh, and B, he lives like five minutes from Linfield's campus. So we get his phone number. We call Bob up. Sure, come over and interview me. That'd be great. We, we go over and interview him. He and his wife, he had to be in his 80s by that point, maybe at least his 80s at that point. He and his wife were out doing gardening when we get there. He's like, oh, hang on, let me clean myself up and climb into the, climb into the living room and we do the interview. And he's just a, just a hoot, just an awesome, awesome guy. One of the first California winemakers to be hired into Oregon, not just to come up here on his own, but to actually be hired by a winery here. So he tells his story and on, on camera he says, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, I, I got, I, I'm, I'm working one day at, at Soko Boston. I get this call from winemaker and he says, Bob, I got a question for you. And he says, okay. He says, how much dirt can be in wine for it to, and it still be safe? <laughs> and so like those kind of stories are, are amazing uh, and, and wonderful. And I'm, I'm sad they're not in the archive officially, but at least they're in the archive up here. Um, there are also like, we have heard, we have stories from people that have just told us off camera things that are outrageous. Um, not often. People in the industry are generally very nice, but there are some stories that are outrageous. There are interviews we've edited that the students have like actively revolted as they were, as they were doing editing because they just didn't want to edit that interview anymore. Um, and there are, and there are some, and there are some, um, there are some actual stories of interviews. I don't, I don't think, I don't think Jim Prosser will mind if I tell the story. Jim, I'm sorry if you do happen to see this and you do mind. I, uh, I did a project with Janie at Brooks Winery uh, to celebrate their 20th anniversary in 2018. Um, and uh, the, the short story of Brooks, uh, Jimmy Brooks, Linfield graduate, uh, has just started his own label, didn't even have, didn't have a winery tasting or anything yet, just started his own label, died suddenly in 2004, uh, right before harvest, I think 2004, 2004, right before harvest, um, uh, leaving his young son Pascal, who I believe was six at the time. Um, uh, leaving him behind as the as the, 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 the nominal owner of, of Brooks Winery, and leaving nothing really, uh, you know, it was right before harvest. It was nothing. Nothing could be done really. So, uh, Janie came up. Janie Brooks's uh, Jimmy's sister came up um, for the funeral, and was immediately introduced to all of Jimmy's friends in the industry. People like Jim Prosser, Jay Summers, Harry Peterson, Nedry, Sam Sam and Cheryl from uh, from A to Z, uh, Steve Dorner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and they all told her that they would see to his harvest that year. They would get his grapes in and make his wine. They'd split it up and all do some of the work in addition to their own work. They at least get Janie through that harvest and then she could figure out what she wanted to do after that. And for anybody who's familiar with Brooks, 
the rest is history because now Brooks is, uh, of course, has a beautiful tasting room, is a powerhouse of the Eola Amity Hills wine and Oregon wine community, and Janie herself is a powerhouse and an uh, awesome person as, to boot. So um, she uh, asked me to do a project with her in 2018 to celebrate the people who came, uh, came about to help Jimmy. So in 2017, 2018, we interviewed all the people who, there was basically 12 either winemakers or, or pairs of winemakers. And she was going to honor one a month in 2018, and they were going to do all this whole thing, and they ended up with a celebration at the end of 2018, a celebration of Jimmy. So I said, sure, we can, we can do that. It sounds awesome. I haven't met most of these people yet. It would be a great way to meet them. We'll do an interview of them, a normal interview, and then we'll do an interview about Jimmy. Um, and so I set up all these interviews, um, and some people we'd already met, like Steve Dorner and Harry Peterson Nedry at that point, went back and talked about Jimmy. Some people we hadn't met at all, like Jim Prosser and, and Jay Summers and, uh, and Sam and Cheryl. And so um, we, <laughs> I set up an interview with Jim Prosser, and I went to confirm about a week before. And I never heard back, and I emailed him, and I emailed him one more time. I never heard back. And so I went out, I think it was like September of 2017, or maybe August, right around the start of school. And it was the first interview, and I think the last interview, where I went out not knowing for sure if there was going to be an interview that day. We're going to drive, <laughs> we're going to drive out to Parrot Mountain. We're going to go see Jim. We're gonna see what happens, because I haven't heard back from him. I don't have his phone number. We're just gonna go, and I was a little more naive then. Now I'd probably dig around and have enough contacts to find Jim's phone number and call him or text him or something. But at that time, I was still a little nervous about doing that kind of thing with someone I didn't know. So it was like, we've been emailing, and then all of a sudden we haven't our email anymore. Well, let's go and see. So I show up at, I show up at uh, JK Carrier um, with my student to do the interview, and uh, Jim, Jim's just leaving. He's going to the DMV. He's got, <laughs> got, got errands to run, and he's, you know, he's a little, He's a little put out, and I and I felt super bad. And I'm like, Jim, it's no big deal. Like this isn't that far from campus. Like we can come back another day. He's like, No, 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 no. It's, oh, fine. Let's just do it now. And and this is again, this is two interviews. We're gonna interview him about himself as long as that's gonna go, and then we're gonna take a little break, and we're gonna interview him about Jimmy as long as that's gonna go. So we're asking him for not just like 20 minutes. This is probably gonna be a couple of hours. So we sit down at the table in the Dickie Carrier tasting room, and we start asking him about. And I'm thinking this is gonna be really terse. His answers are gonna be really short. He's just gonna want to get us out of here. Um, and no, the opposite of that. He was, as all, uh, wonderful and articulate and thoughtful and intelligent and intentional and giving us this great story of him and his wine and, and his journey so far in the industry. And then at the end I said, you know, we're done. And it's been like an over an hour. And I'm like, you know, we, we can schedule the Jimmy part another day too if you want. He's like, no, 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 let's just do this. I'll, I'll hop over here behind the counter, behind the taste room counter, we'll, the, behind the, uh, we'll talk about Jimmy. So we interview him for another half an hour about Jimmy Brooks. And then I'm like, okay. He's like, no, 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 you guys are here, let's have some wine. So he pours, he pours this wine. So we end, up, we end up being there for like two and a half hours. And it was one of those where it was, a, it was again, it was a situation where someone could, could be a total jerk if they wanted to be, and they would be within their right, because like I had confirmed, but I hadn't heard back, I just made this assumption, we made these plans ages ago, things change. He could have just been like, nope, sorry, I gotta go, um, or he could have just brushed us off, and instead, he gave us his time um, and two amazing interviews uh, for this project, and, um, and then poured us this wine and like had this whole, again, this whole day with him, this whole experience with him that is, again, one of the more, of all the interviews, one of the more memorable ones because you're walking in thinking, God, is he even here? <laughs> is he gonna even be here? Uh, so that was a fun one. And I'm sure that uh, Jordan Hitchcock, another student from uh, our archives past, another uh, huge part of this project, I'm sure she remembers it too because she and I were pretty nervous walking in because again, you don't know. So that's one of my favorite um, kind of moments. Awesome. Um, what would you ask of our listeners, your listeners rather, uh, to support the program? 
that's a really good question. No one's really asked me that way before. Um, so the archives is, again, I'm the Linfield University archivist, so I'm, I'm a part of Linfield University's, uh, the library, I work within the library, I report to the library director, I'm the Linfield, I do Linfield University history as well, so it's the Oregon, history, Oregon Wine History Archive is a project within that, it's one of our, it's our biggest collections, one of our collections, but um, it is not its own thing, it's part of the Linfield University Archive, so we are um, fortunately very well supported by the university uh, at this point. Um, we, uh, in terms of financially and in terms of also like support and of, our, of our time being spent this way, um, the biggest support um, we need at this point is purely just um, word of mouth. I mean, and, we've, and we have spread a lot. If you do 200 interviews in two years, you meet a lot of people and you talk to and you make a lot of connections. And, and I will say that the rise of like Instagram and social media has helped us a lot, just like a lot of other small brands. A lot more people know about us than would otherwise. So. Um, Spread the good word about the work we're doing. Um, I hope we, we, we always try to treat people really well, treat them with respect and, and honor the story they're telling. Um, it's nice to be able to make everyone feel like a star for a day. Some people don't really get that very often in their lives and their work. So it's nice to be able to like, you know, to kind of put, roll out the red carpet and bring all the equipment and bring an audience, again, pre-COVID, hopefully post-COVID, bring an audience of students to be and interact and, and make you feel like the expert of the day. I know it's, it's going right to my head right now, so I'm, I'm enjoying this. So. Um, but uh, that support is great. We also, we always love recommendations for people we could be interviewing or collections we could be seeking. So if you know of someone who should be in our archive, whose story should be told, reach out anytime. Um, you can reach out on Instagram, you can reach out on email, you can call me, all my, 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 my information's all over the place. Um, let us know like, hey, you should talk to so-and-so, or hey, so-and-so has a collection of grape records from the 1980s that you should have in your collection. Um, it's always, as hard as we try to keep tabs on the industry, it's way too big and sprawling to ever try to keep tabs on entirely. So there are people that go right under, right under our radar all the time. So um, don't hesitate, reach out. We're very friendly, we don't bite. Um, let us know if there's something we should be doing differently or if there's something we should be talking to or um, if you yourself wanna be interviewed, that's totally fine too. Uh, uh, you don't have to wait for us to ask. We love when people reach out and ask themselves. So. Um, Beyond that, um, we have some big exciting exciting plans kind of starting to ferment for the, for the post-COVID world. We are, like I said, we're hoping to get back down to Southern Oregon, spend some more time out in the gorge and Walla Walla as well, doing getting back to the other parts of the state. We've been very valley-centric for re good reason the last year. Um, it's very exciting to get back out to, to do that. That will require some logistics and some funding down the road that we might be asking for. Um, and there also will be, um, they're also going to be, I'm excited to bring people back into the archives. A lot of people want to see our work. Excited to have some like open houses in the future and things like that. So if you, if you hear about it, come out and check us out. Uh, see the materials we have. Invite your friends and neighbors and, and, uh, and come back to Linfield as, as we're able to welcome you back in the upcoming months. Um, I'm hoping to have some of those kind of social things we used to have to bring people to the library and bring people to the archive. Um, and they'll be open to all. So for now, that's kind of where we're at in terms of support. Um, we are, uh, <laughs> we are, we try to be low maintenance. We try not to take too much of people's time. We try not to take um, too much of people's mat materials, or, uh, you know, resources. So um, we, at this point, we don't have much else to ask for. Awesome. Well, I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Anything we didn't cover today that we should have? Tia, anything we didn't cover today that we should have? 
Um, no, nothing that comes to mind. I, this is awesome. Thank you for the opportunity to do this. It's weird to be on this side. Uh, I appreciate you <laughs> offering to do this. Um, I was trepidatious like many of our interviewers, interviewees are, uh, but this was pretty easy and, and nice to talk about the program and nice to pay some uh, respect to the people who have built this before me and, and around with me. Um, it's an exciting place to work. I'm looking forward to future Linfield students and uh, coming in and helping. Um, now that we have a wine studies program, we have wine studies majors who are excited about it. Um, it's a great connection to have. Um, the students who work with me and, and our wine studies majors are getting about as much of the Oregon wine industry as you can possibly take, I think. So I'm excited about that and um, I'm excited about the future of the archive. It's, we've at a point now, when we started, there was a, there was a long preamble we are an archive that exists in Oregon wine history. We are at Linfield, this is what we want. And we've gotten to the point now where I have to do that less and less, that we're at the point where when you meet someone, they're like, oh, I've heard of you. Or uh, when I was at the symposium two years ago, oh, you're the podcast guy. I was like, well, all right, sure. I'm the, po I'm the podcast guy, I guess. So our interview is up on podcast on iTunes, uh, Oregon, uh, Linfield, Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, excuse me. Um, so, but people are recognizing what we're doing and they're, they're, they're seeing their friends and their mentors and their, um, their people they respect in the industry, people they're interested in the industry, they're seeing them being interviewed by us, they're watching, they're listening, um, they're understanding kind of the scope of what we do. We've gotten past that, that initial, like, you have to be this famous or you have to be this well-known. Once you start interviewing enough people, it's like, well, I'm at least as famous as that guy over yeah. there. Like, you can, yeah. you know, I mean, if Evan's in the archive, you <laughs> yeah. know, anybody, no. But, you know, like, that, that part has been great and it's been exciting for us. We have, um, we have representation from all of the grape-growing regions in Oregon, including Snake River, which I'm excited about, Travis Cook out there doing awesome work at Copper Belt. Um, so we're trying to representative of the state, representative of the whole industry. That's one thing I didn't talk about that I will briefly. Um, with the wine studies major at Linfield, it's a liberal arts college still, liberal arts university now. Um, students are coming to Linfield for wine. They're not necessarily coming probably for a knowledge or viticulture necessarily. That might be something they get turned on to. I think most of them at 17, 18 years old are not really sure other than that wine sounds cool and that seems like a pretty cool industry to work in. Um, so one of the things we've really tried hard to do is to get interviews with people who are outside of the, the kind of normal parts of the wine industry, not outside of the cellar, outside of the vines, um, but people who are, who are working in uh, marketing and sales, people who are working in, in the, law, the law part of things in accounting, people who are um, working in the, the kind of, like, like us on the periphery of the industry, but part of what makes a successful industry, showing students the potential jobs they could have, whether it's someone like Bree Stock working in education for the Oregon Wine Board in addition to a thousand other things that she's doing, um, just being awesome at everything, or um, someone like, um, who we talked to recently, uh, Ellen Archer or Kathleen Wilcox writing about Oregon wine from a distance um, in uh, Washington and New York respectively. Um, there's a huge part of the industry that is kind of invisible to a lot of people or you don't really think about oh, getting into the wine industry means you could travel around writing about wine or you could sell wine internationally or you could run a tasting room or there's all these jobs that most people don't actually think about but that are hugely important and that Linfield students are um, going to be filling roles in the future. So um, it's been exciting for us to interview people in those roles as well, general managers and, and things like that who are not doing anything with the bottle of, or the grape or the bottle or anything but are hugely important. So um, that part's been exciting as well. So representing the whole state, representing the whole industry um, and representing anyone who has a story to tell within Oregon Wine. People, we've interviewed people who have yet, are just about to make their first bottle 
Uh, and that is super cool because that is, you're interviewing people who, that is the very first thing they're doing in the industry. They're, they're just getting started. And it's, at that point, it's more like an oral future interview. But that's cool because you can talk about why did you do this and what do you hope is going to happen next. And then you, again, if it works, you come back and talk to them down the road and be like, okay, how did it go? You talked about the future. How did that turn out? You know, So um, there's no limit to entry for us, and we're excited to meet the next, uh, the next people in the archive. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.